0: So the last few weeks, don't know if anyone recalls what we've been talking about. Um, last week we talked about Peter's denial, but the week before that, I talked about the scene where Jesus was in Simon the Pharisee's home, and the woman came and washed his feet with her tears and uh, and perfume, and you know that was quite a controversy. Uh, and the key kind of learning in that was just about how Jesus saw people, because the week before that we were talking about how Jesus saw the poor. He didn't just kind of walk past them. He didn't ignore them. He had compassion. And he saw them. They were human beings to him. They weren't just an inconvenience to him. And I want to pick up on that idea of how Jesus sees people and how Jesus interacted with people a little bit more today. Uh, Because when I look at Jesus and again and again and again, I'm just. I see that he created a space that uh, attracted a certain type of person and to another degree it repelled other types of people. But he created an environment where marginalized people and people who were on the fringe of society, people who were meant to be uh, the outcast or the pariah or the, the unclean ones. He created an environment where they felt safe and honored and welcome. And, and when I look at Jesus, because I know that the scriptures tell us that Jesus is the exact representation of God. Uh, He's the radiance of God's glory. So when I look at Jesus, I see what God is like. So it shows me how God feels towards people on the fringes. It shows me how God feels towards people who are uh, being persecuted and people who are uh, otherwise treated like they are unclean and not good enough. Um, This is the Jesus that I recognize in the scriptures. And he represents the God that I recognize in the scriptures. He is a good um, a good father, our God, and he loves his children. I wish that the example that all churches and all Christians set was one that, that showed people God's love and not um, some other message. Like we have all sorts of other messages that come out of the church. Um, and you know, and then Christians—they have all sorts of other messages, and and they get promoted uh, on the street sides, and they get promoted in our schools and in our workplaces, uh, on our social media. There is a picture of God that is promoted that is inconsistent with the picture that Jesus promoted. And if I want to look at the who the authority is for what God is like, I, I clearly want to look to Jesus. So I want to just run through a few examples uh, that typify the way that Jesus treated people, how he saw people. And I think we we know how he treated the religious elite. He said to the religious elite, you should know better. You, You know the rules. You should keep the rules because you've said you're going to keep the rules. So honor your word to that. But also don't forget to do the things that really matter. Don't forget to love justice and have mercy and be humble and walk with God. And don't forget the poor. But when he connected with those people who were marginalized or connected with the people who weren't on the in club of the temple, he had a really different approach. I was going to start with the the thief who was on the cross next to Jesus. I'm just going to read two really uh, short verses in Luke 23, 42 and 43. Uh, This is one of the thieves who he, he turns to Jesus and he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. So here is a guy who is convicted of his sin, literally hanging on a cross, dying as punishment for his sin. So, you know, like this, and this is a Ten Commandment one, don't stealing stuff. This is a big deal. And Jesus doesn't say to him, well, you are condemned by your sin. The guy, the guy Jesus says to him, you're going to be with me in paradise. So there is this expression of faith and this dialogue and this interaction with Jesus that allows this guy who should be completely expelled, this guy who doesn't get baptized, this guy who doesn't even have any process of repentance, he doesn't go and return the things he stole, he doesn't go through any hoops, he doesn't have good doctrine. All he has is Jesus. And Jesus says, you and me, we're going we're gonna to be in paradise together. In um, the book of John, we have this story where there is a woman caught in adultery. And I, I often find myself coming back to this story. And at the end of it, uh, as the, the, you know, the elders and, and all, everybody who was there condemning this woman who was caught in adultery, they all leave uh, after the, you know, this kind of infamous you throw the first rock story. Uh, and Jesus is stooped down on the ground, uh, drawing attention to himself and drawing attention away from this woman's plight. Uh, and he says, as he straightens up, he asks her, he says, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Uh, No, sir, she says, then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now go now and leave your life of sin. See, here is again, this is serious high crimes when it comes to the Ten Commandments. And there is no question she was caught in the act of adultery. There is no question that she's guilty. This isn't a gray area where we're like, well, maybe if we uh, have a different translation, or maybe if we look at it slightly differently, or maybe we're just misunderstanding the true context of it. No, 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 she's definitely a sinner. And one of the so-called bad sins at that. But Jesus says, you know what? I don't condemn you. And all the other people that were going to condemn you, I will get in the way and stop them from condemning you. My heart is so great. I want you to not be condemned. But furthermore, I won't condemn you. Even though I am righteous. Remember, because he who is without sin, throw the first stone. Jesus was without sin. And Jesus still did not throw the first stone. He says, I am not going to condemn you. He creates a space where a woman who is literally on death row is made safe and is honoured and is treated with respect and is then not condemned and not killed. See, around Jesus, there was this, this safe space for people who should die because of their, the consequences of their sin. But Jesus does not condemn the woman. In Matthew 8, there is this interesting story where a Roman centurion uh, comes to Jesus and he has a sick servant, Um I'll read you the scripture. It's in Matthew 8:5 to 8. It says, When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, My servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Now, first of all, this is weird just from the outset because here is a very, very important, powerful, famous, rich, successful man who gives a damn about his servant. Now you can read into that what you will. Um, But the reality here is that it is an unusual relationship for this great man of power to have a servant whom he would go and petition a Jewish rabbi in order for healing. And and because of this, um, Jesus says to him, uh, shall I come and heal him? And the centurion replies, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. And Jesus commends this man and says, I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel this oppressor of your, of the people, this man who would come in and stand in, in, um, in power and violence and dominance over Jerusalem, the enemy of Israel, the person who I should be uh, as the Messiah that is coming, that I should be uh, attacking, that I should be condemning. Jesus looks at him and says, you're an example of faith. More than that, he says, uh, he says to the centurion, go, let it be done as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. Jesus doesn't say, well, I don't know about the relationship you guys have. It's a bit weird. Uh, Jesus doesn't say, well, you're an oppressive overlord, so you're a warlord and you're a Roman and I'm not going to have anything to do with you. He doesn't say you need to repent of your violence. He doesn't say you need to repent of your greed. He doesn't say here are this list of 10 commandments that you have broken. He says, wow, you have incredible faith and I'm going to heal your servant. All right, one last story before I get to what I really want to talk about today. Uh, and this is the, um, the story of the Samaritan woman and the Samaritan woman at the well. Like, So first of all, it says Jesus said he had to go past Samaria. And I can tell you, no Jew in their right mind ever had to go through Samaria. They hated the Samaritans. Nonetheless, Jesus turns up and he gets there and he goes to a well. And there is a woman there who is drawing water in the middle of the day. And he has this extended conversation with her and... Um, where he says, I know who you are. I know what's going on in your life. I know you've had five husbands and the bloke that you're living with now, he's not your husband either. He knows that she is an adulterous divorcee who's shacked up with a bloke. And he says, I know everything about you and I still offer you living water. He never once condemns her. He never once uh, says to her, you have broken the rules. He never pulls out his little thing and writes her a ticket and gives her a fine. He just says to her, I can give you living water. The woman said, I know that the Messiah called the Christ is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. This is the representation of the, of, of the God of Israel, the God of, of, of all creation. This is what God is like. He comes to the sinner, the, the person who is repeatedly again and again and again and again chosen to live in a life of sin. And he says, I offer you living water. And just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? He said, they don't even see her. The disciples to them, she's just this, she's just this other thing that exists, but she's not a real person in their view. But to Jesus, she is the whole reason he is there. And then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And they came out of the town and made their way toward him. This is what God is like. He creates space for people who are broken. He creates space for people who are in need. He creates uh, an opportunity for people to connect. So I want to uh, take a deeper look now at another situation where there is a character that society, by all rights in in, in this society, should be despised. But Jesus, again, refuses to do what is expected of religious people. So this is in uh, Luke 19. If you have a Bible, then this is the the time to look it up. I'm not going to bounce to another section in 10 seconds time and you'll miss out. This is in Luke 19. This is a story of a man named Zacchaeus. And it starts out like this. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was. But being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him. And since Jesus was coming that way. And when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man comes to seek and save what is lost. So, Zacchaeus, like in all the storybook picture kind of kids' books of Zacchaeus, he's this kind of goofy, um, you know, like guy with glasses and he's short and a plump and like he's not a cool guy and he's not presented as anything other than kind of a, a loser. But when you look at the context of this story, that's not even remotely true. Zacchaeus, he's in, a, in, a, in the city of Jericho, where there is like significant trade in Balsam, uh, which means that there's significant taxes. And he's a tax collector working for the Romans, which means big trade. And it's like one of the three major tax cities in the is in the Palestinian world. And Zacchaeus is, in, is one of the chief tax collectors, which means he is like a mob boss. He's a guy that would send thugs around to collect the taxes. He's not some wimpy little guy. He's actually quite a significant, powerful, wealthy, important person. So to see him up a tree is even more odd. He's up this tree and he sees Jesus coming because he is desperate to know who is this man. And, you know, I don't know if he'd heard about Jesus healing, um, healing the blind or he doing what I don't know what was going on inside of Zacchaeus. But for whatever reason, he desperately wanted to see what Jesus was like, who Jesus was. He wanted to know what that was. And I don't know if he woke up that morning and in his diary, he said appointment to climb a tree. If he went there uh, earlier in the week and he's like, this is the spot for me. Um, but I'm pretty confident that wasn't the case. He heard Jesus was coming and he's like, This is my chance. I have to see what is going on with this man Jesus. And nobody liked Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was. Nobody liked Zacchaeus. He was bad. He was a guy, like, the way that tax collectors made their money is they would come around and say, I need to take the tax which goes to Rome and I'm just going to take some more for myself. So they were corrupt. And they stole from the people and they worked for the Roman Empire, which meant that they were treasonous. And so the the Israelite people hated Zacchaeus. He was the worst of the worst, which is why when Jesus uh, calls him out of the tree and says, I want to hang out with you. Everyone says... Why is he going to hang out with that sinner? This is the exact kind of person that he should be condemning, that he should be uh, destroying. This is this is when the Messiah comes back. When the real Messiah comes back, like Justice Maccabee, when he comes back uh, like, you know, with his sword to destroy the filthy Romans, this guy is gonna be first in line to get strung up. So I don't know about you. If I'm Zacchaeus, who is a rebel against. Uh, the, the Jewish people and there's a guy who's kind of messianic who's coming into town and I really want to see him and then he comes up and he sees me and now I'm stuck in a tree and he says, you, I must come to your house for lunch. I suspect that Zacchaeus had that moment when he sees the little lights go in the back of, when he's driving, you know, when the police lights and you see them in the background and you think, oh crap, and you haven't done anything wrong. But your, your whole body starts to freak out. A couple months ago when we were traveling, there was a um, terrible internet where we were. So I drove out in the middle of the night, uh, not the middle, pretty late though. The kids were in bed just to download our emails and make sure that nothing was breaking or falling apart in our world. Uh, so I was parked on the side of the street outside someone's house on Phillip Island. And they obviously freaked out and called the police. Um, because as I was leaving, I got pulled over by a copper and he's like, well, you're looking a bit suspicious out here. What's going on? And the anxiety and the stress, it's like, now I've done nothing wrong. Nothing at all. I was completely innocent. My car is registered. I had a license. I hadn't been speeding. I wasn't doing anything wrong at all. But I still had a massive panic attack uh, as this guy approaches my car. And he says, what are you doing here? And I give him my license and he says, everything's fine. Uh, and by that point, I finally calmed down and realized I'm not in trouble. And I said to him as he was sleeping, I said, my kids are going to be thrilled about this. <laughs> They're going to be thrilled. I'm gonna, when they wake up, I'm going to say, I got pulled over last night by a police officer. Uh, you know, and... And they were thrilled. They thought, well, that was great. He thought I was weird. Um, But I suspect this is a little bit what Zacchaeus is feeling like. All of a sudden, the guy who might be there to overthrow his whole way of life is saying, I want to have lunch with you. Now, that's how I feel like he should respond. But it's not actually what happened, is it? Anyone who can wind back the clock and remember the the thing I just read. It says here, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. Now, I've never welcomed a police officer gladly. I smile nervously. But he is glad because he's like, oh, this is what I wanted. This is exactly what I needed. I I was desperate to meet and know and understand who this Jesus was. And here is my big opportunity. So he gladly welcomes Jesus. And everybody else says, all right, that didn't work out the way that I thought. And then we have no idea what happens in between verse seven and eight. I wish that there was a long record of exactly the conversation that Jesus had with Zacchaeus in between verse seven and verse eight. In between, I will come and gladly come into my home. And Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here I now give half my possessions to the poor. What happened in between those two verses? Because something definitely happened inside Zacchaeus that I suspect had been brewing for some time. I suspect that Zacchaeus had been uh, felt alone, that he'd felt alienated from his people, that he didn't have purpose or, or identity. I suspect that Jesus came to him at just the right time and shared with him that compassion and that love and that acceptance. And, and Zacchaeus's heart overflowed with, with Repentance. He said, I'm going to give back to the poor everything I've taken. And anyone who has been ripped off four times over, I will repay them. Something happened inside of Zacchaeus in this moment. And I'm willing to bet that if they recorded that conversation, we, the church, especially now, would turn it into a formula and we would use that conversation. We would turn it into four spiritual laws and we would go and we would only ever say that because that would be the right way to have a conversation with someone. So as much as I want to know what was said there, I'm glad it doesn't tell us. Zacchaeus wanted to meet Jesus because he thought that maybe Jesus could help him. He'd heard about how Jesus had treated people. He'd heard the rumours of this man who touched unclean people and saw them, the other people person be healed. He'd heard about this man that was teaching something radical and different and he was desperate to know, maybe Jesus can help me. He was a wealthy and powerful man, but perhaps he was also a deeply lonely and scared man. He had plenty of money and plenty of influence, but maybe he just wasn't satisfied. And he was searching for something greater. And I don't know about you, but I reckon that there are times where all of us, and not just all of us, but all the people that we interact with, all the people in our offices or in in the clubs and connections and relationships and families that we're a part of, where they have that sense of emptiness or brokenness or loneliness or desperation, the existential crisis that comes from living in our modern world where we just don't know. And Jesus can meet with us and something magical can happen, like what happened between verse 7 and 8, where all of a sudden everything changes. (coughs) Where we live in a world where it just doesn't make sense, where where the, the, the good and the righteous Um, don't get what they deserve and the evil and the unrighteous seem to always flourish and succeed. And in that world where it doesn't make sense, Jesus can come in and do something radical and make sense of our lives. When our inner conviction um, that the amount of money and the amount of fame or power or career or relationships or stuff, the amount of things that we accumulate, they don't satisfy. That's the place that Zacchaeus was in. And Jesus calls him out of the tree and he says, I must come to your home. And everybody else was scandalised that Jesus would spend time with this sinner. That this holy man would go into the home of the tax collector. You see, and that's how our society is now. That's how a lot of the church is now. Because they look at the sinners and they think God is angry with them. Now, in one breath, they say, oh, no, God loves the world. God, you know, he gave his only son. Oh, God loves the world. And then in the next, uh, in the next sentence, they put up things on social media or they put out public things or they do whatever. And they just say these awful, disgusting, horrendous, condemning, awful things to, to anyone who doesn't look the same as them, to anyone who doesn't live the same as them, to anyone that doesn't behave the same as them, they condemn. They're just like this crowd how could, how could Jesus hang out with that sinner? They think that God is angry. They think God is angry with people who are in sin. They think God is angry with people who don't uh, tithe enough. And they think God is angry with people who don't go to church enough. And they think God is angry with people who have different sexuality and different uh, eating habits and different lifestyle choices. And in every possible way, there are just so many people who look at Jesus and say, I can't believe you'd want to hang out with them. And I wish that the world would be scandalised by the sorts of people that we were prepared to hang out with and love and embrace instead of being scandalised by the way that we publicly condemn people. Let them be scandalised by our love. Let them say, I can't believe you wasted so much time and money and effort pouring out love to people. Wouldn't that be a better thing for the church to be accused of? When we get a picture of God coming to meet with us, it's like that copper. When we we think God is angry and I'm going to be in trouble, but that's not the story at all. God wants to meet with us with compassion and mercy and kindness, not fear or judgment or condemnation. See, it's out of God's compassion and His mercy that we are motivated to repent, not out of fear or terror. You see, Jesus shows Zacchaeus, That God loves him. He doesn't show Zacchaeus that God hates him. Or that God wants to have him burn for eternity. Or that God is angry that he violated all of the Ten Commandments. Or that God is... That is not the conversation that Jesus has with Zacchaeus. So why is it the conversation we feel we need to have? The idea of that confrontational evangelism. Where you call out people's sin. Because they need to know the bad story of their sin. Before they can know the good story of God's love. I'm like, no. There is God is love. Anyone who says God is love and that has a but after it, God is love, but He's also uh, a God of justice who wants to fry and kill and destroy everyone who is bad. God is a God of love, but, you know, no, there is no but there. God is love. And because of His great love, we can be transformed. Because of His great love, we can be empowered to live differently in a way that is consistent with His love that is the best possible way that we can live. But the delivery of the message from heaven in Jesus was God is love. It was never God is going to destroy you if you don't accept His love. And Zacchaeus stood up and he said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give back half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. You see, it's God's love that motivates transformation inside of people. This is just like the woman who who washed Jesus' feet uh, in Simon the Pharisee's house. And Jesus says, he says, therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. And Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. You see, Zacchaeus was the worst in their society. He, he was a corrupt man. He was a rich, wealthy man who didn't care for the poor. He was a Jew who also um, worked with the Romans. He was treasonous. He was a, 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 like a, a guy that, that stood over people and took their money and because he had been transformed so much from that, he gave back his money. He, he understood that he needed this forgiveness so greatly but, and he loved much. It's just like that woman. He understood that forgiveness more. So Jesus, um, Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house. Jesus didn't condemn him. Jesus loved on him. Jesus made him safe in an environment where everyone else said, you're a dirty sinner and I hope our Messiah is coming to your house to poison your food. You know, like... That's not know what happened at all. And the love of Jesus transforms Zacchaeus. At the beginning, Zacchaeus was like, I desperately want to see Jesus. And by the end of this story, he desperately wants to follow Jesus. When I look at these examples of how Jesus interacts with people, there is a really interesting and common trait that happens every single time. In Jesus' interaction Occasionally with Jewish people, he mentions the law. But in his interactions with non-Jewish people, and this is true of Paul also, you can go and check that if you're really keen, they never condemn the person they're speaking to. They never once say, have you ever lied? Well, then you're a liar and you are destined for hell unless you repent. They never once bring up the, the Ten Commandments. Not once. A thief, a woman caught in the act of adultery, a Roman centurion, an adulterous divorcee, a corrupt tax collector... The angle is always God loves you. God wants to eat with you. God wants to be in your home. God wants to embrace you. God wants to forgive you. God wants to to know you. God sees you. And it doesn't mean that these people didn't repent. It doesn't mean these people didn't have transformed lives. It's just that the thing that motivated transformation was love, not condemnation. The thing that motivated transformation was acceptance and community and love. Not being told you are wrong and you must change or die. You see, evangelism and discipleship are much, much harder work than simply just handing out tickets for breaking the law. That's not evangelism or discipleship. Evangelism and discipleship is about relationship. It's about intimacy. It's about connection and community. It's about being there for one another and doing life together. It's about eating a meal with Jesus and allowing him to transform the inside of you. And it takes time and it takes sacrifice and it takes effort. And it is much more work than a cheap social media post or an aggressive soapbox speech at the end of a street. Jesus always treated people like they were human beings, not issues to be dealt with. Jesus never looked at people and saw them as the adulterer or the thief or the greedy man. Jesus saw people and he had compassion on them. And the way that he did evangelism was to love people and create a space for them to to grow and change. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you that you create space for us. Again and again and again, you create space for us. I pray that we would be transformed. I pray that we would um, repent, that we would turn completely and walk in a different direction um, towards that love. That we wouldn't run from our sin out of fear, that we would run towards our Saviour out of love. I pray that we would be a, uh, a people, a community that embraces everyone, wherever they're at, without condemnation, without judgment, just to say, you know what? God loves you. I love you. Let's, let's do this journey together. And God, I pray that we would live healthy, friendly, happy, engaging lives. Um, but I pray we would find that place by knowing that we are loved. Heavenly Father, I want to just ask now that for anyone here who has felt like Zacchaeus, isolated and up a tree, that everyone was out to get him or hate him and that nothing was, um, that they just didn't have any friends. They felt that loneliness or that emptiness, even in their wealth or even in their success, they felt that emptiness. I pray that we would know that you meet with us. pray we would know um, whatever it is that happened there, in between Jesus and Zacchaeus, I pray that that would happen for us as well and that we would be radically transformed because of it. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.